Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand now for the reading of our passage for the sermon this morning, John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. Says the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll also come with you. And they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast a net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put, out, put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come. And have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. This is now the third time Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. So the events recorded in this chapter of John's gospel form what I would call an elision between the death and resurrection of Christ and the commencement of the work of the apostles uh, in building the New Testament church. So we're in this sort of elision period between the, the amazing life of Christ and then the work that the apostles are going to be doing. They connect what came before, this chapter connects what came before and particularly in Peter's restoration point toward what is coming. 
Same with the last chapter that we looked at, really. It's sometime after the events we looked at last time when Jesus visited with the apostles, the disciples, particularly Thomas. We know that between his resurrection and his ascension, there were 40 days. Um, strangely enough, though, in reading this passage, it, it sort of appears like life had gotten back to a normal routine for these men. He appeared 12, 12 times in different ways, and as far as appearing to the whole group of the apostles, this was the third time that he appeared to a group of them, as it says at the end of our passage. The fishermen among the apostles, um, Peter, certainly, and the sons of Zebedee, also, um, fishermen, are back to their boats and nets. Even having seen the resurrected Christ, they seem to be wondering what is next, and they're, they're languishing around, and, and Peter... Peter's just like, well, rather than sit here, I'm going fishing, you know, I'm going to go fish. They really don't know what to do, um, but the fact that they're back at their vocation, at least near to their vocation, seems to indicate that to me. They, they just don't, they don't know what to do. Disciples are gathered at the Sea of Tiberias otherwise known as the Sea of Galilee, okay? And seven of them decide that sitting around and waiting for something to happen was too excruciating, so they decide to fish. Well, Peter decides to go fishing, and the six others decide that, hey, sounds good to me. And what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens, right? How many of you have been on fishing trips where the hopes are high and nothing happens? Yeah, I mean, show of hands. Um, they fish through the night. They do not catch a single fish. I mean, we've been there, we've done that. Or we've sat in a deer stand and, and for days did not see a deer. Or we've, we've walked into the, the woods to, to flush birds and, and the, only, the only birds that were flushed were the songbirds, right? Um, these... These fishermen catch nothing that night by God's providence, okay? They catch nothing that night by God's providence. In not getting anything that night, what God is doing is readying them for the next day's astonishing blessings, right? It's, it's, it's failure or it's, it's just nothingness before the outpouring of blessings that would come the next day. The day, um, the day without a catch, the day without a blessing, the day without having what we think we need only makes the day of receiving that much more joyous, that much more glorious, right? Too often, though, we do not want to wait on God. Those nights with nothing, those months and years where we've waited for one particular thing and they haven't come to us, well, those, those are the days when we begin to think, well, I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands. I'm not going to wait on the Lord anymore, right? It's hard for us to endure the day without a catch of fish. Think of Abraham and Sarah. 
promised an heir, and when it did not come, they determined that they could no longer, you know, endure a year without a catch of fish, or in their case, years without the promised heir coming. And what do they do? Well, they determine to take matters into their own hand, and they don't wait on the Lord. And so, we would... We would all mature greatly, I think, overnight if we just learned to endure the nights of no catch, right? The nights of waiting, the nights of not having. How, how blessed would we be if, if we had that kind of maturity? You know, the ability to wait, um, wait on the Lord. So they fished all night, caught nothing, and as they are approaching the shore, they're about 300 feet out, there's a man off in the distance that they can see standing on the shore. It's the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. But the disciples don't recognize him. They, they don't see him. Maybe they just see him in silhouette. The man asks a question that probably rubbed the disciples the wrong way, right? You do not have any fish, do you? Likely he's shouting, right? 300 300 feet out, I mean, with any sort of wind, waves, he's got to shout this. And, and he's shouting to them, and, and likely that accounts for just the short, simple, no! <laughs> but their, their egos may also account for the short, simple, no. Right? Um, shouting back then, Jesus tells the men to put the nets down on the the right-hand side, I think that's the starboard side, right? I don't know. I never learned these. Okay, good. Um, on the right-hand side of the boat, and he gives them, as he gives this command, notice, he gives them a promise. Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. Now, as I'm reading about this, of course, all these commentaries who are theologians have to consult other places because they don't know anything about fishing. But Ryle makes the point that, look, it's not uncommon to, you know, to do something like this. You fish off one side of the boat, the school of the fish is tightly clustered together on the other side of the boat, not paying attention, apparently, to, the, to that side. Right, and so this can happen. It can happen naturally, but it must have taken a certain amount of humility for them to listen to Jesus at this point. Um, after these expert fishermen who had been doing it all their lives had been fishing all night and caught nothing, taking advice from a man they didn't know standing on the shore, wouldn't have been easy. Nevertheless, they listened to him and send their nets over the right side of the boat. As had not happened at all up to that point, the nets begin indicating there's, there's a massive school of fish. I imagine Peter began to tug on the nets, expecting that he would just be able to simply bring back in an empty net once again. And then when it wouldn't budge, he's like asking the sons of Zebedee to come over there and say, I don't know, just help me pull on this. There seems to be more weight, or perhaps, you know, perhaps we've hooked it on something, <laughs> you know? And while Peter is straining on those nets, 
I mean, how can his mind not be going back to an experience that he had with the Lord three years earlier? Right? It, it had to be going back to the time three years earlier when Jesus called Peter and the sons of Zebedee from Luke 5. This is, this is what happened three years earlier, right at the beginning, right at the calling of Peter and James and John. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come over and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at, do you remember what he says? He fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. That's the calling of the apostle Peter. He sees these nets being torn apart. He sees that this command has been instantly fulfilled. And he's like aware of his sinfulness, that he's in the, he's in the presence of holiness. Go away from me, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon, and Jesus said to Simon, do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They left those two boats filled with glorious fish to follow their Savior. So at the outset of their ministry with Christ and at the outset of their ministry now at the end, without Christ. Jesus had taught them with a massive haul of fish. Both times. When Peter and John saw those nets were straining, they must have recalled Jesus' words to them from years earlier. Do not fear, for now on, from now on you will be catching men. We think of the passage coming up regarding the restoration of Peter, don't we, in the rest of 21. We usually think of that as the official restoration of, of the Apostle Peter to the ministry. But even in this hall of fish, Jesus is reminding Peter of his calling. Do you not remember that hall of fish earlier? Now you're hauling fish again by my command, right? So even this, I take, is the beginning of the restoration of Peter after his denial. They could have ignored Jesus' command, right? To cast the net on the right hand. And not being obedient, they would have missed out on the blessings that come from obedience, right? They were obedient, they received the blessings. If they had not been obedient, they would not have received the blessings. I mean, 
Simple lesson. Simple lesson that seems to be very difficult for us to learn. That blessing comes to us through obedience to the Lord. Not independence from the Lord. Right? As it was with these apostles, simply obeying Jesus led to blessing. Same with, same with you and me. Obedience is often hard to contemplate. It seems to be counterintuitive at, at times, right? Tithe when I'm broke. Tithe when I, when I can't pay the bills. Hmm. Pray when I'm anxious. That seems the last thing I could possibly do when I'm anxious, right? Um, forgive when I'm angry. Consider trials joy. Maybe that's the one you can't wrap your head around. Consider your trials as joy. And obedience doesn't always yield immediate fruit as it did that night with the apostles on that day. But obedience, dear brothers and sisters, will always bear fruit in due time. Work at God's command and you will know all kinds of blessings that the world will never know. You will know God's blessings. Seek for them. Seek for those blessings through your obedience. It does not take long before John and Peter get it. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and that's the way, of, the way John left his name out of things. He put that in its place. The disciple whom Jesus loved. He looks at Peter and he says, It's the Lord. It's the Lord. That's who's commanding this. Look at the fish. Don't you remember what happened three years ago? Look at this. It's the Lord. Right? Another appearance. More time with our Lord to know what he's thinking. And undoubtedly, at that point, John and Peter's hearts are burning, swelling with love for their Savior. Now, let's learn something from... uh, Let's learn from this that when, whenever something goes well for us, we ought to exclaim, it's the Lord. Whenever anything goes well for you, you should say, it's the Lord. Right? That should be your first thought. You shouldn't say, well, look what I've done, or ha, 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 you know, you know do one of these things. Anything you do. That any blessing you receive, any accomplishment you make, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. The Lord has done this. And that, practice that. Be, you know, make that so that it's just the muscle memory and exclaiming, it's the Lord. It's the Lord that's done this. And that's the proper mindset. We ought not to take credit for any good thing that falls to us. We ought to see, express our thanksgiving and give the credit to God. You ran a race and came in third place. It's the Lord, right? You got a promotion at work after being recognized for your hard work. It's the Lord, right? Your womb was, your womb was opened and you were with child. It's the Lord, right? You graduated magna cum laude, right? It's the Lord. You wrote a book. You published. You did whatever, you made breakfast. It's the Lord. Right? 
Now remember, we, they are 300 or so feet from shore. That's five and a half Olympic pools lengths. It's five and a half lengths of an Olympic pool. That's how far they are from the shore. Immediately after John says it is the Lord, Peter, thinking the same thing, puts on his outer garment because he had taken everything off because having garments on when you're hauling in nets is, is dangerous, right? So he had stripped himself for the purpose of work. And without a moment's hesitation, he jumps overboard and begins to swim ashore. And that is, it seems, very like the Apostle Peter to do that. We've learned about the Apostle Peter and his quick action. Remember him being the one who answered all the questions? Remember him being the one who hacked off the ear of Malchus at Jesus' arrest? Remember him being the one who quickly denied with cursing when servant girls asked him if he was a follower of Jesus Christ? Sometimes his quick action arose from faith. Sometimes his quick, quick action arose from ignorance, Right? He acts quickly, and he's not about to go through the process, think of it, of figuring out the rigging to get the little skiff down into the water and then power the boat with oars to get to the shore, meanwhile dragging a giant haul of fish behind it. He's like, I'm not, not going to do that. I'm just not going to do that. He wants to make progress immediately toward his Lord. He wants to be with Jesus, right? He will not wait, even if it does not get him there much earlier than the others. He couldn't stand the thought of, you know, not making progress. Ryle thinks that the, that the water was shallow enough that Peter probably waded to the shore, assuming that if he were swimming, he'd hardly be inclined to put on more clothes. I don't know, perhaps. On the other hand, you know, one way or the other, Peter wants, he wants to be near Jesus. He wants to make progress toward Jesus, the one whom he had denied. He wants to be there. Ryle says, John was the first to see, but Peter was the first to act. And it makes me think of this, that just, just in that, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of gifts. John saw. John exclaimed, Peter moved. Peter acted. There will be many people in our church who are the seers. They have discernment. They look around. But they have no will to act, you know. And then there are actors who, you know, um, those who, who do act, who lack the discernment of the seers, right? And, they need, and we need each other, right? We, we need each other. We need people who, who will see and observe. And then we need people who act on those observations. And you have a gift for one and maybe not for the other. But, but we're encouraged by that. God gives a variety of gifts, but the same spirit to his church. Now, the other disciples are much more pragmatic. They think through the situation. They find it reasonable to take the skiff to the shore, and they don't just leave behind the fish. Much more reasonable, much more pragmatic. Peter had no thought for the fish. The other six didn't want to let this miracle go to waste. 
the six who used the boat and remembered the fish must have been Dutch, right? Sensible. Sensible. Bring the meal. Bring the food. It still would have been quite a scene. Six men in a skiff dragging a full net of fish. It's not a great way to make progress to the shore, I don't think. Peter must have known that. (laughs) Peter knew that 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 was going to take some time. They all do, though, get to the shore, and what do they see? What do they see when they get to the shore? This is the part of the passage I love. The grill is lit. (laughs) The grill is lit. Like it's on fire, not like lit, lit. But both, I guess, work. Right? The grill, the charcoal fire, and on it, fish are already cooking. There's fresh bread laid out there. That's what they arrived to see. A charcoal fire already has fish cooking, bread freshly made somehow. And Jesus had prepared them food for their weary bodies, wearied from fishing all night. And where there is food, why not more? Right? He asked them to bring some of the fish that they caught in their hall. And Simon, Simon now gives his attention to those fish drawn to the land and the net. All of the fish, it says, are large. <laughs> and of course, they know the exact number of them. They count how many are in here. They, I mean, yeah. Hunters and fishermen are statisticians. They keep track of every deer, what the conditions are, where they got it, right? And they they have spreadsheets for all of the things they've done. Another shout out to my dad. Every time we've gone bird hunting, which I'm about to do, he knows where and how many we got, what the conditions of the day are. It's all logged out there. But, and so I just think it's, that's what this 153 is. This has been allegorized to death. Like every, all the ancient church fathers are trying to figure out why 153, you know. I just think it's fishermen who keep stats and they want to remember this day. It's as simple as that. It's earthy, okay? As proof of the miracle of all, all of this, the net was not at all needing mending. Remember the previous time the nets are breaking. This time the nets stay intact, right? They don't need any mending. It was not torn at all. I do find it striking that we have such, that specific count of fish, right? Jesus then gives the men this very simple, very welcome command. Come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. That's all he says. Come and have breakfast. The resurrected Lord, the firstborn from the dead, by inviting them to eat with him, is teaching them not to be afraid of him. 
He's teaching them about his love for them, right, both body and soul. He's being familiar with them, even and especially after he had propitiated the wrath of his father, died and risen again. Yes, his resurrection body was a glorified body, but his tender compassion for these men had not changed in the slightest. He loves them. He loves them. He wanted them close for another meal together. He wanted their aching bodies to be refreshed. He wanted to converse with the men who would go out and tell the world about him. He wanted to have one more breakfast. And so he was loving them and assuring them of his love by providing, with, providing them with two familiar things, a fresh cooked meal and his presence. Those are about the two things I want in my life. A fresh cooked meal and God's presence. His presence, though, was the most important thing. And the meal was a way of telling them that he wished them to be at ease. He wished them to be, be fed, just to be at ease. Yes, the denial the denial. And what you did in running away and being scattered is still fresh in your memories and in mine, but, but let's have breakfast. I want you near. God had not forgotten them. God had not abandoned them. And that was told to them around a charcoal fire with fish and bread on the shore of the lake of Galilee. And then we learn something about the disciples' state of mind at this point. None of them ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. In other words, they are not confused about who is before them. Not at all. Sufficient proof had been given to them that this was Jesus risen from the dead. To ask the question would be to deny what was obvious. They know it is the Lord. And yet, why would the apostle John even write this? as if he's signaling that even though they knew it was the Lord, they're still on edge about it, given, given everything that's happened recently. They're just still on edge. They may still be questioning if he is friendly toward them, even after his previous statement about giving them peace. And then we learn that he took bread and gave it to them. And he took fish and gave it to them, just as he had done those previous, previous times, you know, with the 4,000 and the 5,000. When, when these very men gathered up baskets full of leftovers from those two fish and five loaves. So think of the opening verses of John's gospel. That take us into the, to the very recesses of time, or actually it would be into the into pre-time and the life of the Trinity. These words, these very first words in this gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. That one. 
the incarnate Son of God is now sitting around a charcoal fire with his men serving them bread and fish. It's glorious. It's stupendous. It's mind-boggling. It's lit. We believe, dear brothers and sisters, if you believe, you believe in a God who, though he created all things, condescended to sit around a charcoal fire serving fish and bread to sinful men. That should thrill you. That should fill you with all kinds of joy, right? That immense condescension on his part. And those sinful men would be sent out to the ends of the earth to bring the message of his glory to the fallen world. And he initiates it by a barbecue. You know, at this point in the sermon, I could tell you something about hospitality. But I think that actually diminishes this passage to take this in the hospitality direction. Yeah, be hospitable. You should do that. But Jesus is being hospitable. He is providing a meal. But what is more important than Jesus' hospitality, hospitality, what is more important than Jesus' hospitality is his presence. His presence. Do you know the presence of the Lord? Do you know the sweet and intense presence of the Lord? Right? Or is your, is, is your life always just been about being in your own head? Thinking your own thoughts? But do you know what it's like to be in the presence of the Lord? Have you had had the similar joy that the apostles must have felt as they ate that bread and ate that fish and sat around that fire with their Lord? Have you known that? Has your heart burned in you in the presence of worship as you read the word, as you lift up your minds to prayer? Do you know the presence of the Lord? It is available to you. If you have never known the presence of the Lord, it is available to you. You may may walk in the cool of the garden with the Lord. Right? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. I will dine with him and he with me. Isn't that glorious? Is glorious not because you get to dine and eat delicacies, but it's you get to dine with Him. You get to get, you get to dine with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the the fellowship that all who put their faith in Jesus Christ have with the risen Lord, with the Triune God, with the Eternal One, the Alpha and the Omega. That sort of intimate bond. And here we are at this service where we come to the table about to feast ourselves on that good Lord's very body and blood. By faith. 
What a delightful thing. What a wonderful thing. We get to dine with Jesus now. 